This week, our study of the Old Testament prophets, the so-called minor prophets, takes us to Zechariah, almost right at the end of the Old Testament. Now, Zechariah has 14 chapters, and I have about 15 minutes, so I can't do more than scratch the surface. But I encourage you to read Zechariah in your own time. It's a difficult book, but I found it helpful to read it alongside the book of Matthew. Zechariah is made up of a series of prophecies that span a 20-year or even longer period of time. They do hang together. The whole book builds towards a climax talking about a, a future day, the day of the Lord, when God himself will return as Israel's king. But the parts that I want to focus on are the parts that have already been read, read to us, just a couple of verses in the first four chapters. The idea of restoration links those different passages. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Because it's those verses and the idea of restoration that they bring that have really encouraged me as I've read and studied in Zechariah the last few weeks. Now, Zechariah is prophesying at the same time as Haggai. So, a big thank you to Brad for last week's excellent summary of historical context. Uh, Go back and watch that for, for a better summary. But... Remember, Israel's kingdom's been split in two. You have Judah, the people who lived in Jerusalem, are this remnant. They're the last of the nation to be conquered. They're finally conquered by Babylon in 586 BC. They're in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Now, I won't refer to Judah. I'll refer to Israel as a whole, because even though this remnant is originally from Judah... In a real sense, God is using them as this remnant to rebuild the entire nation of Israel for himself. So, to recap briefly, it's 70 years after Israel has had 70 years of exile. It's around 520 BC at this point, and a remnant has been allowed to return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is crucial because it's the site of the temple. And it would be hard to overstate the importance of the temple for Jews in this period. Remember, there's, a, there's whole chapters. If you go back to uh, the book of Kings and Chronicles, there's whole chapters that are devoted to describing the temple when it's built. And that's because every aspect of the temple, the materials, the dimensions the uh, decorative artwork, all of it was meant to reveal an aspect of God's character. And the, the temple building itself was a symbol of God's dwelling with his people. Part of the tragedy then of exile, it's not just the humiliation, it's, it's not just the dispossession, although these things are very real. It's being cut off from temple worship. In a profound way, it's banishment from God's presence. 
Now, of course, we know from our reading through the prophets uh, that God has not abandoned his people. And in fact, the message of Obadiah from a couple of weeks ago was exactly that. Through his prophets, God is hinting at a future time when Israel will be avenged on its enemies, when it will be restored. But in order to be ready for that time, Zechariah brings a message of God, and it starts with a message of repentance. Let's look at Zechariah 1, verse 4. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. In preparation for that physical return back to the the land uh, of God's people, there's a more basic return. There's There's the return of repentance that needs to happen first. Now, in this command, we're reminded of God. He even says, I was angry at your father's. We're reminded of a God who's wrathful um, against sin, and as only a righteous God could be. But in the command to repent and the promise to return to those who return to him, we're reminded of the need to hold God's God's wrath, the severity of God, uh, with the patience of God, the kindness of God. We need to hold those to intention, as indeed the Bible does throughout. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, the basis of that drawing near, uh, what makes that possible, was not yet clear to God's people in 520 BC. But we'll see throughout the book of Zechariah that there are hints of how that could be. In Zechariah chapter 2, Israel is given an instruction to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. In Zechariah 2 verse 10, the Lord says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Despite the tragedy of Israel's sin, the dispersal of its people, God promises, he reiterates the promise that he gave as far back as Moses, that I will be your God and you will be my people. God's done some amazing things for the nation of Israel. He's rescued them from captivity in Egypt. He's given them the promised land. And yet all this time, despite his great power, he has not been distant. Think back to Exodus. The tabernacle had been the symbol of God's dwelling with his people. And later on, the the temple makes that image even more permanent. And the temple's the focus of Zechariah's rebuilding project. Then the, uh, the gospel writer John picks up on that same image when he says, the Word, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that, that dwelt among us is tabernacle imagery. The phrase is really um, pitched his tent. God is holy. So his people must be people of repentance. But God is not unapproachable. Our God actively reaches out to us. And this is not a new idea. It's all the way back in the Old Testament. He always has done. And he reaches out to us even to the point of identifying with humanity, taking on flesh in the person of Jesus as our mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, Zechariah's audience in the 6th century before Christ doesn't have the same benefit 
that we have of, of being able to see Jesus in this way. But this book is full of images and symbols of the Messiah who was going to restore Israel and in whom we have our own uh, restoration. Chapter 3 of Zechariah contains a prophecy about the branch, which is an image many of the prophets use to talk about the Messiah. He's the descendant of David who will reign forever. This descendant was to be the long-awaited king. He was going to fight Israel's battles, restore the nation to a golden age like it enjoyed under kings David and Solomon. 500 years before Jesus was born as a man under Caesar Augustus, Zechariah gives us a clue as to the exact nature of this Messiah. In Zechariah 3 verse 9, God says that I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now, this is the tension running throughout, uh, throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout all the prophets. On one hand, God is holy, but how can, he, how can a holy God keep his promises, the promise he made to Moses and to Abraham, on the one hand, and yet also deal with the sin of his people on the other? William Cowper, the 18th century clergyman and abolitionist, wrote that stunning hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Cowper is drawing on Zechariah's imagery. In chapter 13 of Zechariah, there's this prophecy about a fountain, a fountain that will open in the house of David for the cleansing of their sin. Just as the book starts with a call to repentance, there's this idea running throughout Zechariah that Israel's greatest need is not for God to defeat its enemies, but for God to forgive its sin. One last verse to conclude this brief partial overview of Zechariah and then a final thought about how we can respond. Chapter 4 introduces us to a character named Zerubbabel. He's a returned exile, a man chosen by God to lead the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding project. Now, although the rebuilding had begun, many were discouraged, and many doubted God's promises to restore Israel. Perhaps they thought the best was over, and this, this return, was just a day of small things. In Zechariah 4 verse 10, God responds to these people, saying that whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice when they see Zerubbabel measuring Jerusalem. And the measuring is not just an image of the rebuilding physically, but it's a familiar image of the way God has set Jerusalem, has set Israel apart for himself. Zerubbabel is a truly impressive figure. He's listed as a governor of Israel. He's mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah as well. And he stands in the royal line of David as an earthly predecessor of Jesus. But God in chapter 4 makes it clear that it's not Zerubbabel or Zechariah or any one man's glory. Uh, the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem will be finished, but it will be to the glory of God. Zechariah 4 verse 6 reads, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might 
nor by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah has revealed a series of future blessings for the nation of Israel. And over and above them, God reminds his people that he is the one who is with them. The rebuilding of the temple is eventually completed, and Israel eventually returns from exile. But while surrounding nations like Assyria and Babylon and Greece had to rely on the ruthlessness of their generals or the strength of, its, of, the, of their armies, Israel's lesson is clear. They're not, finally, to put their trust in these things. God is with them. Israel's restoration will not come through conquest, but through one who gave his life as a ransom for many. How, then, are we to respond to these ideas in Zechariah, a prophet prophesying two and a half thousand years ago to Israel? Well, there are three points of application to consider. First, give thanks to God for the true temple, Jesus Christ. We believe that the whole history of Israel, the prophets, the sacrifices, the temple system, all point towards the true Messiah, Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again 2,000 years ago. He is the true temple. He's the one uh, in whom God deals with our sin once for all and in whom we can be with God. Give thanks and believe on him. Second, although we, and I'm speaking as a Gentile as most of us are, uh, as members of the church in the 21st century are not the nation of Israel, we are God's people. We have been grafted in. We're members of the body of Christ in the world. Just like God's people in the 6th century BC, we need to examine ourselves and repent as we strive to be more, fa more faithful to God's calling. Our God is a gracious God and he's not distant. Turn to him and he will turn to you. Third, and finally, a thought for Penrith Baptist Church in 2021. I don't want to suggest that we've been in, that we've been in exile, but the last two years have been hard. Many of us have been struggling with sickness. Many of us have lost, lost loved ones. Many of us are grieving for the great things that have happened in the past. Or for people who were in our church who've now moved on. Perhaps the future looks uncertain or different from what we expected. And on top of all this, we're still suffering from the disruption to our normal lives of COVID, uh, the lockdowns, the other restrictions. Though it's hard to communicate this without being face to face, I grieve with you. The Bible doesn't make light of suffering or grief. Perhaps you can relate to the Israelites' discouragement at what they felt was only a day of small things, a letdown, an anticlimax after a glorious past. If that's the case for you this morning, then I pray that you would be encouraged by the words of the living God, that he give you strength for what lies ahead. In these words, not by might, nor by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. As God's people, we do not put our trust ultimately in our circumstances, 
or in the abilities of any one person or group of people. We put our trust in the God of the Bible and his living and active Holy Spirit who restores us, who makes it possible for us to obey him and live faithfully as his people in the world. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as Moses said to the children of Israel thousands of years ago, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as our God is to us whenever we call upon him? You hear our prayers because you have shown us grace. You have not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have welcomed us home like the prodigal son, enfolding us in your embrace and lavishing us with everything that you have. We give you thanks for your word, which reveals the truth about you. We give thanks that though you are holy, you are not unknowable. What thanks is there that even comes close to the thanks that we owe for the redemption we have in the blood of Jesus? Thank you that you have restored us to be members of Christ's body through our baptism into his death and resurrection. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, by whom we have faith in Christ and not in earthly might or power. Thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.